Well, before I get started, I want to introduce myself. I'm uh, Mike Clary. I'm a retired pastor from Redding, California. Don't hold that against me. Um, but before we get started, I want to address the, those that are streaming with us. And I know about you guys. You're sitting there on your couch, probably still in your PJs, got a nice cup of coffee, a cinnamon roll. Well, we're glad you're with us anyway. And the reason I know that is because I've done it. <laughs> Anyhow. Let's open our Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 20. And before we get started, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, I graduated from uh, California State University at Long Beach. Hey, we have an alumni somewhere. Oh, all right. <laughs> and I majored in anthropology. And part of the anthropology course, you had to do a methods class. And I did my methods class in archaeology. And so we actually went out onto an um, uh, archaeological site that was indigenous Indians there around the, the college, and we excavated that site. And, you know, you, you get this little square, you string it off, and you got this little square that you dig in, and you got a little trowel, and you got a little brush, and you're digging and, you know, trying to find something, anything that looks like an artifact. And man, I hit this stone. I went, all right, I think I found something. And I carefully dug around it, brushed around it, exposed it, drew it. You know, you have to take draw, make drawings of what you find. Drew it and everything. And then I carefully picked it up and looked at it and thought, all right, man. <laughs> I got a sure A with this find. This is cool. This is probably part of a, a pistol or something, not a pistol that you shoot with, but a mortar pistol. This is probably a part of a pistol or something. So I go running over to the prof, and I show it to him. I say, what do you think? He says, oh, that's a nice stone. I go, really? He goes, yeah. I go, what is it? He says, it's a throwing stone. And he threw it away. <laughs> he rejected it. And there went my A. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a little bit about a stone this morning. I hope it's not a stone that any of us have rejected. I don't think you'd be here if you have, but I hope you don't reject that stone. So in um, Luke chapter 20, we're kind of going back. Brian did uh, the last part of 20, and I'm taking up there, here at uh, verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, now it happened on one of those days that he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Now let me just kind of set the stage a little bit and give you a little bit of background. In chapter 19, we see Jesus Christ on Palm Sunday, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a, a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah the prophet to a T. And there he, 
he was rejected as he presented himself as the Messiah, God's promised deliverer. So that was Sunday, and then Jesus came back on Monday, and he, and he went up into the temple, and he drove the money changers out of the temple. Now these money changers had a little scheme going on. You see, everybody, every male over uh, 18 had to, had to observe Passover at the, at, at the temple. That was the law. And so when they would go, they would have to pay their temple tax. And so they had to pay their temple tax in temple coinage. Now, most people didn't walk around with temple coinage in their pocket. And most of them had either Greek or Roman money. So they would go up and, and have to exchange their money into temple coinage. And they could do that, and that's what the money changers were there for, except only they charged them 25% interest. And if they had to make change, they charged you another 25% interest. On the temple mount, they sold certified sacrifices. These were kosher. The priests had inspected them and certified them. But they sold them at 15 times what you would buy the same animal to sacrifice on the street. So if you wanted to, after the Passover, if you wanted to make sacrifice for your sin, as a, as a Jew, you could go out on the street and you could buy a dove for a dollar. If you went up on the Temple Mount, that same dove would cost you $15. So if you went out on the street and bought a dove for a dollar and you took it up to the Temple Mount and wanted to sacrifice that, they would inspect that dove and find some sort of flaw in that dove and reject it. So they had quite a scheme going, going on there. And they, <clears throat> they had actually turned the temple into kind of a swap meet type of thing. And Jesus drove them out. He said that it is written that my Father's house is to be a house of prayer for all people. And you've made it into a den of thieves. Now he was daily in the temple teaching and preaching and the common people came and heard him gladly, but he was creating quite an uproar among the religious leaders. See, these little marketplaces, these little places of exchange and buying sacrifices, just so happened to be franchised by the high priest. And he was making a lot of money by selling at exorbitant prices certified sacrifices. So Jesus was teaching in the temple, and the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and demanded, by what authority are you doing things, these things, chasing off these merchants, and where did you get that authority? Now, the day that the chief priests and the elders confronted Jesus about that and questioned him was the tenth day of Nisan. 
It was four days before the slain of the Passover lamb. And Exodus 12 tells us that you had to, four days before the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed, you had to examine it. You had to scrutinize it and, and inspect it to see that there was no flaw in it. The very same day that Jesus Christ presented himself and the chief priests and elders began to question, scrutinize, and uh, examine him was the very day that they were doing that to the Passover lambs. And our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, was found without blemish. He was found faultless. Now basically they were saying that we are the authorities around here. Who gave you the authority? And don't you love Jesus' answer in verses 3 and 4 where he says, I'll ask you a question. If you answer mine, I'll answer yours. John's baptism, was it of God or was it of man? And so they huddled together, and in verse 5 it says, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But actually, he does tell them. He tells them, not directly, but indirectly, with this parable, beginning at verse 9. He says, a certain man planted a vineyard. Now, in Scripture, vineyards were used as a poet, in a poetic sense, and as an allegory for the nation of Israel. It was first used by Asap, the psalmist, the chief musician of David. And in Psalm 80, he speaks of how God brought the vine out of Egypt and planted it in the land. And the people cried out to God. In verse 14, they cry out, Return, we beseech thee, O God of of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. And the vine which your right hand has planted, and the branch that made you strong for itself. Now the same idea of the vineyard, the vine, being the nation of Israel is later reiterated by by Isaiah. He picks it up in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now let us sing, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. Now if we would drop down to verse 7, I don't want to read the whole passage for the sake of time. In verse 7 it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, and behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So when Jesus speaks to them about the vineyard, they would immediately know that he was talking about the nation of Israel. And then he said, 
there in, in verse 9, as he began, that he, it says, Then he began to tell him a parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to the vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dresser beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Now God is the one that planted the vineyard, the nation Israel. And here, the vine dressers are the spiritual leaders, the priesthood. God intended that they should take care of the vineyard. They should nourish it. They should cultivate it in order that it might bring fruit, bring forth fruit, that the nation might bear fruit. The fruit that God is looking for, of course, is love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, forgiveness. The characteristics that God desires to develop in a nation, any nation. And he desires to develop that into people as individuals also. God was not demanding some horrible thing from these people or from our life. God only wants you and I to live in love, to live in peace, to be kind, considerate, compassionate to the needy. He wants you to love Him and to love your neighbor as yourself. And God left it to the religious leaders to develop these characteristics in the people. But the religious leaders had become greedy. They were more interested in their own welfare and how they could keep their authority and their power than in the welfare of God's people. They were not feeding the sheep. They were fleecing the sheep, the flock. So they could easily see the point in the parable. It's interesting as you look at the nation Israel and see how it mistreated the prophets that were sent to them, the servants of God. The three greatest prophets to the nation of Israel was Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The people, or the leaders of the nation, killed all three. They had Isaiah sawn in half. Jeremiah they stoned. And a Jewish man killed Ezekiel. And they were all killed by their own people or rulers because of their prophetic activity. So God sent over and over and over again prophets telling the people to repent and to return to God. And if they didn't, they would be restored. But they wouldn't listen to the prophets. Now in verse 13, he goes on, And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, 
This is the heir. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. See, they had already been having discussions about how they might arrest Jesus and put him to death. They had already concluded that they had to get rid of Jesus. The high priest had says, don't you realize that it's expedient that one man die? That we might save our positions? I want you to look at John 11, verse 48. It says, if we let him alone... It's, what, it's Caiaphas is speaking here. Caiaphas was one of two high priests that they had at the time. They had Anna, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was appointed by the Romans. Caiaphas was the high priest before. Most of the people listened to him. But he said, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they had already consulted together to put him to death. It was like Jesus was reading their minds. Jesus knew what was coming. So they said, this is the son. Let's kill him. In the last part of verse 15, it says, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, certainly not. And then he, Jesus looked at them and said, what then is, that, is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and whoever falls on the stone will be broken but on whomever it falls he will grind to dust then they realized hey he's talking about us verse 19 and the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him but they feared the people and they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. <laughs> Don't you just love Jesus? The guy had no fear at all. He didn't care what people thought. He was going to speak the truth no matter what. The psalm that Jesus just quoted, Psalm 118, is part of what they call the Ha'el. The Ha'el are praise songs. And it's Psalm 113 to 118. Now they sang these songs on all the feast days and all the, um, the holidays. They even sang that song, especially they sang that song at Passover. Jesus probably sang Psalm 118, this verse, at the Last Supper. But it talks about a stone. And Psalm 18 is probably one of the most quoted Old Testament verses in the New Testament. And it refers to the construction of the temple under Solomon's reign. 
They would cut these huge stones with hammer and chisel. They would chisel it out of limestone, this rock. And they would do it miles away from the Temple Mount so that not one sound of the chisel would be heard on the Temple Mount. And then they would send the stone up to the Temple Mount. And when they sent one of the stones, they looked at it and didn't fit, so they threw it down the hill, down into the Kidron Valley. Later, they came to a place where they didn't have a stone to fit, the cornerstone, it was missing. And they realized it might be that stone down there, and they brought that stone up, and it, per and it fit perfectly. The stone that had been rejected turned out to be the cornerstone. And Jesus applies this to himself. He says, you're trying to build your religion apart from me. He says, you're going to see that I am the cornerstone. Without me, nothing stands. And it's interesting, the thing that they were afraid of losing, their position... We've got to get rid of Jesus, they said, or we're going to lose our little business here. We're going to no longer have power and authority over the people. And it's interesting to me that there are things that will cause a person not to surrender to Jesus Christ. There are some of you today that may have something that's holding you back from surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. You might be saying, well, I, I might lose this if I surrender my life to Jesus Christ. The very thing that they were afraid to lose, they lost, and they lost completely. When the Romans came in in 70 A.D., about 35 years later, they came in and destroyed this temple, and not one stone stood upon another. And the whole system of Judaism went out the window. There hasn't been a sacrifice since that time. The very thing that they were afraid that they were going to lose by surrendering to Jesus Christ was the very thing that they lost for not surrendering to Jesus Oftentimes, it's the thing that you're afraid of that you're going to have to give up. The thing that you might lose, it's the very thing that you do lose when you're afraid to surrender to Christ. Jesus asked them a question back in verse 16. He says, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when he heard that, when they heard that, they said, certainly not. Or they cried out, oh, God forbid, as the King James says. But that's exactly what did happen. The vineyard was given to others. The vineyard being God's people. It has been given, really, to the church and to the ministers of the church to oversee God's vineyard, God's people. And they seek to develop God's fruit, nourishing and cultivating that it might bring forth the fruit that God is seeking. 
It was then that Jesus quoted them that part of Psalm 118, the Ha'el. Now, referring to that stone, Jesus declares, if you fall on that stone, you will be broken. But if that stone falls on you, you are going to be ground to dust. He could at this point maybe be pointing to Daniel chapter 2. I think he was probably pointing to himself there as the stone that was rejected. But he could have been pointing to Daniel chapter 2. Remember when Daniel was interpreting the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And God had shown him that dream. It was a dream of the Gentile nations that were going to rule over the world and specifically the nation Israel. Remember there's this multi-metallic image. Had a head of gold. Arms and chest of silver. Had a stomach and thighs of bronze. Legs of iron. Feet with prominent ten tones. Toes. <laughs> <laughs> of clay and iron mixed. And, Nebuch and, and Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, the Babylonian empire. But it's going to be replaced by the arms and chest of silver, the Medo-Persian empire. And that's going to be replaced by the belly and thighs of the Grecian empire. And that's going to be replaced by the legs of iron, the Roman Empire. And then the final, last Gentile empire to rule on the world was going to be a confederacy, ten toes of clay and iron mixed. But then Daniel watched. He saw the, that image and he saw a huge stone that was, that was carved without hands, and that stone was cast down on the feet, and it destroyed the image, and the image was just kind of dissolved. And then that stone grew into a huge mountain that covered the whole world, and that speaks of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God that's going to come. And he said of that stone, if you fall upon the stone, you will be broken. But if the stone falls upon you, it would be ground to powder. If you cast yourself upon Jesus Christ, though your life be full of sin, you deserve death. If you'll cast upon Him, and if you'll be broken, He will break you. He'll break your pride. He'll break your arrogance. But He'll be merciful to you, and you'll be forgiven and you'll be saved. But if you stand resolute in your pride and your arrogance, if you refuse to come to Jesus Christ, then one day that stone will crush you and grind you to powder. The Bible tells us that the judgment of God is going to come upon the earth because of the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Because they've held the truth of God in unrighteousness. The Bible says, Woe to the nation that forgets God. And I don't want to close on a bummer, 
But I think this is something that the Lord would have us to hear. And actually, I think we're beginning to see the first fruits and the consequences of a nation that has thought to, sought to rule God out of its national life. The moral breakdown in our nation is gradually eroding away the pillars on which this nation stands. A nation that was strong has been eroded by the edicts of the Supreme Court. Edicts that opened up pornography and has allowed our land to be filled and flooded with pornography. Edicts that have opened up abortion. Edicts that have thrown God out of our schools and thrown prayer out of our schools. Edicts that are destroying the family unit, the very moral planks in which a society is built and a nation is built. They've been eroding, and now we're beginning to see the fruits of that eroded morality in our nation. No nation can exist and be strong apart from a reliance and trust in God. Our nation has been extremely weakened as a result of our moral breakdown, and this is the only the beginning of the consequences that are coming. The Bible tells us that God's judgment is about to come and our, on our nation, and not only on our nation, upon the whole world, because our nation is only a reflection of the attitudes of the whole world. A whole world that stands against God and against Jesus. Fall on that stone and you'll be broken. But if it falls on you, you'll be ground to powder. You'll be blown away. This is serious business. What we're doing here today is serious business. Being a Christian is serious business. People are not going to hear unless they hear from us. Not just Aaron and, and Brian and Bob and Dan, but us. And not just here, but out on the streets. At those tables that you're going to be meeting at. You do it in love. You do it in, in, with compassion and mercy. Not condemning, not judging but if there's not a revival in this land, we're not going to have a land to say is our own. So the question is, have you fallen on the stone? Have you cast yourself upon Jesus Christ, upon His mercy and grace, and asked for forgiveness? Have you been broken before Him, contrite of heart? If so, you know the joy of being forgiven. You've experienced God's love firsthand. And your heart and your desire is to know Him more and to seek Him. If you're not broken before Him, one day you will be broken by Him. Philippians 2.10 says that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Jesus as Lord. The only question is, when will this happen? Will you do it now? 
Or will you wait until it's too late? I want the worship team to please come forward. Before we go into com- uh, communion, I want to I finish this. I want to finish up Luke. Luke 20, verse 20. So when they watched him, they sent spies who pretended to be righteous and they, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of, the, of, the way of God in truth. So after in, inspecting his authority, now they're going to inspect his integrity. And they ask him, Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In Jesus' day, paying taxes to Caesar was tantamount to supporting a man who claimed to be God. And if Jesus said, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, the Jewish leaders would accuse him of supporting idolatry. But if he said, no, don't pay your taxes, then they would accuse him of anarchy. Listen to his answer. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a Daenerys. Whose image and inscription does it have? And he answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Jesus answered ingeniously. It was amazing what he said. He said, give to Caesar what has Caesar's image on it, money. And give to God what has God's image on it, yourself. That's all God wants. Doesn't want your money. Doesn't need it. The church can use it. (laughs) The church needs it. But God doesn't. Give yourself. Now as we come to communion, we're going to sing a song, even as Jesus sang a song. And then we're going to stop and we're going to have communion. I forgot my cup. Barb, would you grab my cup there? Thank you. You, Justin? We got one. I got it. So, the Bible says examine yourself, discern that if you're in Christ or not. If you're not, you're going to take this in an unworthy manner. If you haven't fallen on that stone and been broken, then you're taking it in an unworthy manner. All you need to do is fall on the stone and receive His love and forgiveness. And you can take the cup.